You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Good day and welcome to ICU's class on the Counter-Reformation. This is a class that you will take for credit and before getting down to the business of the lectures, I have a few introductory remarks. First thing to note is that there is a textbook for this course. The name of the author of the text is Arpocia Sia. The critical part of his name is the last one, which I assume is pronounced Sia. So it is Arpocia Sia, and the title of his text is The World of Catholic Renewal, 1540 to 1770. It was published 1998 by Cambridge University Press. And this will be, as I said, the text of the course. There is a second book that we may call a co-text for the course. And it is written by Mark Greengrass and the title is The Longman Companion to the European Reformation, circa 1500 to 1618. And it is published, as the title says, by Longman, and it was published 1998. Both of these are essential to the course, to following the lectures and to getting the full benefit from them. The first, Sia's, is, will function as an actual textbook. And you will be expected to read the entire book from cover to cover. The second, the co-text, or green grass, will function also as a text, but it will not be necessary, although it would be helpful and valuable to read this book, too, from cover to cover. But this is more like an encyclopedia or a treasury where you will find straight history, religious history, secular history, plus background on the makeup of the church and how the church functioned in that. It will have facts in it that you would have to search for in odd places otherwise, but they are all conveniently gathered here. One thing to note further about this book is it says the European Reformation, and the author is English, so it means that the English Reformation is not part of this text. It is the Continental or the European Reformation. I would like then now to recommend very highly two other books, which are not texts, but which are very valuable, one of which I would 
make required reading if it were still in print, or if we could get it, and that is John Olin, O-L-I-N, The Catholic Reformation, Savonarola to Ignatius Loyola. Reform in the Church, 1495 to 1540. This is a book of documents, and very well-chosen documents, most of them given in full and introduced by very perceptive introductions. And you will find in this book documents that you will find nowhere else, as far as I know, in English. And finally, R. R. Palmer and Joel Colton have written a textbook in modern European history. The title is A History of the Modern World. And the fifth edition is now out, and it's published by Knopf. And I cannot recommend this book too highly. I believe that it's the finest, the best textbook in history ever written in the United States. And if you follow the course of the Reformation in Palmer's chapters two and three, and supplement that, as it were, with the lectures of this course and the text, you should be able to comprehend quite well what is meant by the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, and how each developed and why they developed in the ways that they did. Now, having said that, before going on to lecturing on the subject itself, I would like to run through some bibliographical material. So this is a bibliographical lecture, and there will be five sets or different kinds of books in this bibliography, and I will give you three in this lecture and save two for later on in the course. The first thing that we should note about the Counter-Reformation, bibliographically, is that there is no entirely satisfactory overview of the topic or the subject. So in this bibliography, there will be two kinds of books. Those that deal specifically with the Counter-Reformation and those that are either about Europe and the time of the Reformation or the Reformation itself as opposed to the Counter-Reformation. A number of books stand out and any student of the Counter-Reformation should at least be aware of them, and it would be helpful if he could get his hands on them and dip into them. The first is by Jean Delumeau, as the name says, a Frenchman, and the title of the book is Catholicism Between Luther and Voltaire, A New View of the Counter-Reformation. This is the book. Now it says, A New View. The book was published in 1977. 
and it was written earlier by Delumeau, so it's already 25 years old, and perhaps some of the newness has worn off. But it is a very challenging book, and one that has had a profound influence in the European continent, and also in England, on the course of Reformation and Counter-Reformation studies. It's a book with a thesis, and the thesis is controversial. Delomo believes that there was no such thing as the Christian Middle Ages. They are a myth. And that in the 16th century, the popes and Martin Luther and John Calvin were all engaged on the same task, to convert Europe to Christianity. And as I say, it is a very influential book and a number of authors in English, especially one, John Bossy, derive much of their material or their approach to the Reformation and Counter-Reformation from Delumo. It is, as I say, a challenging and controversial book. Unfortunately, the author is not always well served by the translator. The translation leaves much to be desired but it is a very worthwhile book. Another one is John Bossy, Christianity in the West, 1400 to 1700, and it's published by Oxford University Press in 1985. And it is an intriguing overview of Christian beliefs or the beliefs of men and women at large, and their impact. Like Delomo, Bossy makes heavy use of the method of sociology. So it is not what we might call the old-fashioned narrative history. Rather, it is history informed by, and at times shaped by, sociology. Another book that is very valuable. Seminal is probably the best word to describe it, is by H.O. Evanet, an Englishman who taught at Cambridge, and it's titled The Spirit of the Counter-Reformation. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 1968. It is a joy and a delight to read but it is for advanced students. But Evanet has had a direct influence on Bossy, and both of them together have influenced Counter-Reformation studies today. Among other books or works on the Counter-Reformation, we could mention one by a professor at Notre Dame Marvin R. O'Connell, who in 1974 published The Counter-Reformation, 1559-1610. It's published by Harper, and it is a book in the Langer series of modern history. It is a basic, straightforward, old-fashioned survey. And it has a full, up-to-date bibliography to the year 1974. Another work of 
interest is Evan Cameron, The European Reformation, published by Oxford Clarendon Press, 1991. It is a recent survey, as the date says, and it is a good survey, but it does not treat ex professo or explicitly the Counter-Reformation. Another work would be Janelle, J-A-N-E-L-L-E, P. Janelle, The Catholic Reformation, published in Milwaukee in 1949. The best way probably to describe it is that it is old, it is pious, and respectable. Another work that is certainly worth more than a glance, and which a student of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation should be aware of, is the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Reformation. The editor is Hans J. Hillerbrand. It's in four volumes, published, as the name says, by Oxford University Press in 1996. This work should be consulted really by any student studying the Reformation. It has up-to-date bibliographies and a wide range of articles. There are also a number of histories of the Reformation itself, which within the Reformation treat the Counter-Reformation. One is by Owen Chadwick, simply titled The Reformation, Penguin, 1964. Another is Philip Hughes, A Popular History of the Reformation, Garden City, 1956. And a third would be Joseph Lortz, The Reformation, A Problem for Today, Westminster, Maryland, 1964. It's quite obvious these three are pretty old. The chances of finding them in print are slim, although Chadwick is still in circulation. But they do not intend to treat the Counter-Reformation except insofar as it impacts on or shapes the course of the Reformation. Finally, a professor at Yale, Roland Bainton, has written three books that fit no standard category, but which should be of interest to students of the Reformation. All three books start with the title, Women of the Reformation. The first is Women of the Reformation in Germany and Italy. The second, Women, etc., in France and England. And the third, Women of the Reformation from Spain to Scandinavia. All three are published in Minneapolis. You will note that all of the books that I have mentioned thus far are in English, so that we are not misled. Ordinarily, being an English speaker means that we have access to a wide variety of materials and studies. But in church history or the history of the church, it means that we labor somewhat under a handicap because there is not a dearth of books in English, but there are certainly not as many books in English, say, as there are in French or German 
or Italian about the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation. And really to taste fully the range and the extent of studies in the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation, one should be able to read, however haltingly, a foreign language. The two most valuable would be French or German. Now, the Reformation is both an event in the history of Europe and an event in the history of the Catholic Church. So it makes sense to check histories of the Church to see what they may have to say about the Counter-Reformation. And as a rule, the best books to consult are the multi-volumed histories of the Church or of the modern world. There is a standard multi-volume history of the Church. It's ten volumes. General editor Hubert Yaden, and it is published by Crossroads. It is a bit advanced for undergraduate and perhaps for some graduate students, but volume five deals with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And it has a good up-to-date bibliography. In fact, if you would check Yaden's bibliography, you would find very few books in English. Most volumes would be in German or French. Another multi-volume history of the church is by Fernand Mouret, M-O-U-R-R-E-T, A History of the Catholic Church. And Volume 5 covers the Renaissance and the Reformation. It's a traditional historical manual. It's dated, but it has the advantage of being detailed. Finally, there is the New Cambridge Modern History. There are three volumes in this series that touch on the Reformation. The one that touches most directly on what we will be taking in this course is simply called The Reformation. It's volume two, and the editor is G.R. Elton in Cambridge, 1962. It's a good survey. It has chapters written by various authors, which means that it's uneven in value, but there is an excellent chapter on the New Religious Orders by Evanet, which should really be looked at. Volume 3 is called The Counter-Reformation and Price Revolution, which we might think would be more to our point, but I think most students would not find it as valuable as Volume 2. The general opinion of it is that it was disappointing. And finally, there's a volume edited by Cooper, J.P. Cooper, called The Decline of Spain and the Thirty Years' War, 1609-1648-59. And all of these are in print. What the third volume tells us is that there is much more involved in the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation than simply affairs of the church. Affairs of state impinge on this and some affect the Counter-Reformation. Sometimes they will shape it. Sometimes they will 
directed. A third group of books that we should be aware of when studying the Counter-Reformation is the books that treat the papacy, either the papacy as an historical institution. We would expect in many ways that the place to start to study the Counter-Reformation would be to look at the popes. And what's surprising is that none of the Counter-Reformation popes has been the subject of a good biography. That's in any language, really. But even worse, there's nothing recent in English. So where do we go? The logical place to start is a history of the popes. The History of the Popes by Ludwig Pastor. It's in 40 volumes, published by Herder in St. Louis, in translation from 1923 to 53. And the relevant volumes would be 15 through 25. That is from Pope Pius IV through Paul V. As one historian has recently remarked, and this is a direct quote, in most cases, Pastor's biographies of the individual popes remain the most thorough treatment available. End of quote. Now, also of value, we will find, would be some books that have been written recently about the papacy as an institution or about the papacy in a particular time. I'm thinking, first of all, of the book by Eamon, E-A-M-O-N, Duffy, titled Saints and Sinners, A History of the Popes, published last year, 1997, by Yale University Press in both England and the United States. It's recent, it's up-to-date, and it's lively history by an English historian who teaches at Cambridge. But as his name tells you, he's of Irish extraction. And what some might find to their liking is that there is a six-cassette video that accompanies the book. I recommend it very highly, and especially his bibliographical essays at the back of the book. A second volume that could be looked at is J.N.D. Kelly, and the title is The Oxford Dictionary of the Popes, and this is published by Oxford University Press in 1986 and it is the best of such books on the papacy. But Duffy's book is a narrative history or study of the papacy from St. Peter down to today. Kelly's book, on the other hand, is what it says. It's a dictionary or a biography of the different popes. So you have as many biographies as there are popes, and most of them are quite short, but they are compact and they are historically reliable. A book on the papacy that has been 
in the news lately is one by Richard McBrien titled Lives of the Popes. The pontiffs from St. Peter to John Paul II. It's published in San Francisco by HarperCollins and it was published last year, 1997. One might think that this is a history of the popes, but it is really not a history, but a tract calling or written from a specific point of view to promote a specific program for the church through the papacy. As McBrien himself admits, he draws heavily upon Kelly, and historically it would not be as valuable as Kelly. There are just a few more books that should be mentioned in general. If you want to find out something about the Counter-Reformation or Counter-Reformation popes, you could go to encyclopedias. In English, there is the New Catholic Encyclopedia. In German, if you read German, there is the Lexicon für Theologie und Kirche. And in French, among the Dictionnaire, for which the French are famous, is the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, the Dictionary of Catholic Theology. And there is also a Dictionary of Ecclesiastical History and Geography. And if you read French, these are certainly worth looking at. Finally, a book that fits no category, but which should be of some value to students, is the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, edited by E.H. Livingston and F.L. Cross, and it's now in its third edition, which was published last year. Contrary to what it might seem, the Oxford Dictionary is both a work of history and theology, and more history than theology. So you will find good, in the most case, reliable articles on the popes or on the church, written from an Anglican point of view. But good articles and even more a valuable, perhaps one might say an invaluable bibliography. The articles are known for their up-to-date, thorough and complete bibliographies. I want to talk about what we can call the preliminaries of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, or some events that surround these events and in some ways inform them or shape them. As everyone knows, a few years ago when John XXIII was Pope of the Catholic Church, he called a council that met at the Vatican, the Second Council of the Vatican. And he surprised the world and nobody more than members of the church and bishops when he did this. And many thought that it would not happen, but it did. And before the council got underway, the German bishops sat down and wrote a joint pastoral letter, which they asked to be read in all the Catholic churches of West Germany. 
Here is a part of that letter. The bishops say, in our confitior before the council, we should include the centuries-old scandal of divided Christianity. In Germany especially, where the Western schism was born, by that they mean the Reformation, do we suffer with particular anguish from this deep wound in the mystical body of Christ. We cannot simply accept this situation as an unalterable fact. Instead, we feel ourselves involved in a thousand ways in the great tragedy of the church in our country. The straightforward objectivity of historical research conducted by Catholic scholars as well as by others shows that there were many great abuses and serious scandals in the life of the church at the end of the Middle Ages. Consequently, we feel compelled openly to confess the guilt we share through solidarity with our forefathers." End of quotation. A hundred years ago, or before, say, the first council of the Vatican was convened, it would have been unthinkable for the German bishops to write something like that. One reason they wrote that way, as they admit, is that historical study and research has shown that there were abuses and there were defects in the church. In other words, reform of some kind was needed. And reform came. At the beginning, not in the shape or the way in which many churchmen wanted, but nonetheless, it came. It helps also to remember that if we take the long view of the history of the West or the history of the Catholic Church in the West, we can see that the Reformation, and with it the Counter-Reformation, then are part of a process that had been going on for some time and which goes now under the general name of secularization. And I want to read you now a paragraph from R. R. Palmer's History of the Modern World, which is at the beginning of chapter 2. He wrote this, Latin Christendom was the first modern society to embark on the momentous, troublesome, and long-drawn-out process of secularization. In 1300, Europe was still primarily a religious community. The clergy were the prestige-enjoying class. All else was somehow oriented to or pervaded by religious belief. Three centuries later, religion was one interest among many. The church itself was divided. The Christian faith still stood. Indeed, it was purified and reaffirmed both by those who became Protestant and by those who remained Catholic. But other interests made equal claims upon the attention of men. Government, law, philosophy, science, the arts, material and economic activities 
were pursued without regard to Christian values. Power, order, beauty, wealth, knowledge, control of nature were all accepted as desirable in themselves. And then Palmer concludes by saying, it is this process of secularization that gives unity to the intricate history set forth in the present chapter. So we have the Apologia or the Confession of the German bishops, the observation at the Counter-Reformation or the Reformation along with the Counter-Reformation are part of a process that the church was really resistant to. And now we should note what we mean by the Counter-Reformation. In some ways, there are as many definitions as there are historians. This definition that I will give you now is from an article by Evanet. And he says, by the Counter-Reformation is here meant the long and difficult process by which after the unexpected shock of the Reformation, the church underwent a spiritual revival and an administrative renovation, putting her own house in better order and deploying her rejuvenated forces against her assailants. It was an active movement in one way or another from the early decades of the 16th century to the middle decades of the 17th, a many-sided phenomenon that formed a decisive stage in the transition from medieval to modern Catholicism. End of quotation. What Evanet is saying there is that it meant one thing to be a Catholic, say, when St. Ignatius of Loyola was born, 1491. And it meant something different, say, when St. Vincent de Paul was alive and working in France in 1648 or 1650. And what was responsible for that was first the Reformation and then what we call the Counter-Reformation. Now before going into the causes of the Reformation or Counter-Reformation, I think it would be helpful just to give in no particular order, some facts or events and dates that it would be helpful to keep in mind. We can call them the surround, as it were, of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Some might say these are necessary background. Some events were, some things would be from church history, some from simply the history of Europe or European states at this time. And as I say, there's no particular order, and therefore it doesn't mean that number one is more important than number eight, or number eight more important than number 15, if we get that far. I would say we'll start by noting that in the 16th century and on into the 17th century, Europe was dominated not so much by one power as by one family, and that family was the Habsburgs. And during the course of the Reformation, 
the Habsburgs stayed loyal and faithful to the church. And they were the Catholic champions. And they occupied two of the premier thrones in Europe. A Habsburg was the king of Spain, and a Habsburg was the Holy Roman Emperor. Here are three names of famous, important Habsburgs. Charles V, who was the emperor at the time when Luther nailed his theses on the church door, an emperor up until the 1550s, who really besieged almost, as it were, the pope to call a council to deal with the religious question that had erupted with Martin Luther. Charles V was the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, who was the wife of Henry VIII. Another Habsburg would be Philip II, who was king of Spain and who for a brief period in the 1550s was married to Mary Tudor, who was the Queen of England and who lived in England. Philip is the man who launched the Armada against the English. A third Habsburg would be Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor in the 17th century. He was trained by the Jesuits, and he had as his goal the restoration of Catholicism in all of the imperial lands. And he came within an ace of succeeding. Now, within this, we should note especially the dominance of Spain. If there was one power in the 16th century that could lay claim to almost universal dominion, or to what the men and women of the time called universal monarchy, it was whoever was on the throne of Spain. Spain had the first empire on which the sun never set, and from 1580 to 1640, the throne of Portugal, along with its dominions, was ruled by the king of Spain. So one practical example of this, what does this mean? It means that in the New World or the New Worlds, everything south of the Rio Grande in 1600 was ruled by Spain. And the king had possessions also in the Orient, the Philippines and others, Portuguese outposts as well. Now what this means on a very practical level is if you take out a map of Europe, there's one country in the center, as it were, or the heart of Europe, France, which is surrounded by Habsburgs. Wherever the king of France would look, he would see Habsburgs. Habsburgs in Spain, in Portugal, in the empire. Holland and Belgium were parts of the empire at this time. And what this leads to is something that for some is hard to comprehend, that when the Reformation comes down to fighting, that France, which is Catholic and whose kings are Catholic, France will frequently take the side of the Protestants. And it gives rise to the saying to describe French policy, France Catholic at home, Protestant abroad. Another point to note is that 
toleration or tolerance upon which we place so high a value today had no value for either side in the Reformation. It was not a virtue. In fact, it was considered to be foolishness. Another point, the exploration and the settlement of the world or the new worlds in the 16th century was pretty exclusively a Catholic or Latin enterprise. There were no Protestant settlements, say, in North America to speak of that lasted until the 17th century. If we look beyond Europe, we can see that something that was critical in the eyes of Christians, and especially the eyes of the popes, was that Islam was on the move and that Islam was a threat to Europe or to Christendom. It used to be put this way, the Turk was at the gate. And there are two critical battles that are fought in this time. One is a sea battle, the other a land battle. The first was the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, which meant that Islam would not be able to turn the Mediterranean into an Islamic lake. The Christian cause was promoted most actively by the Pope and Philip II of Spain. The second battle there took place in 1682 in Vienna, in which under the leadership of a Polish king, the Christian forces drove back the Turk who was at the gates of Vienna and saved then the Danube Valley for Christendom, for the Christian faith, whether Protestant or Catholic for both forms. And this is 170 years almost after Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door. So the Turk is there and we must always remember that. A third battle took place which has burned itself into the memory of English-speaking peoples, of the English especially, and that was the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And in religious terms, it meant that England was not going to be conquered for the Catholic faith. The next is perhaps the most critical of all the points to note about the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation, the success of one or the failure of one, and it is this. The Reformation started in Germany with the Germans, by a German, Martin Luther. And when it is all over, no matter what date we put to the end of the Reformation period, the Germans are the only major people in Europe to come out of the Reformation religiously divided and almost evenly so. In other words, some are Catholic, some are Protestant. And elsewhere, the usual pattern is that if Protestantism triumphs, then the people go overwhelmingly Protestant, as in England, or if they hold for Catholicism, then they stay overwhelmingly Catholic, as in France, or Italy, or Poland. And this leads to a further point, not so much about the Germans, or Germany as it is called, 
The Germans were not just religiously divided or just end up religiously divided. They were also politically divided. In the 16th century, there was no Germany and there was no Italy as we understand them today. There were Germans living in a countless number of small principalities, city-states, some ruled by bishops, some ruled by princes, or that, and all in some way under the emperor. In Italy, in the 19th century, Count Metternich said of Italy that it was a geographical expression. In other words, it was not a country. And that's all the more so in the 16th century. There are Italians living on the Italian peninsula. And there are a number of states there. Some of them controlled or dominated by Spain or the Spanish. But in the very middle of the Italian peninsula lay the Papal States. And this brings up a very important point, which is that the Pope was a secular as well as a religious ruler. And he was not ruling over a postage stamp country in the 16th century. He would have been the largest landholder in the Italian peninsula. And he had to take care then not just of the spiritual welfare of Catholics, but also the material welfare of his subjects. Finally, a number of dates, which it helps to keep in mind. 1453 was the fall of Constantinople, and that made the threat then of Islam or the Turk very real in the 16th and the 17th century. 1492 is the central date in Spanish history, and it leads, of course, to the discovery of the New World. 1493, for the line of demarcation, divides the New World or worlds between Spain and Portugal. That line was drawn by the Pope. 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. 1527, Spanish and German mercenaries are in Rome for one of the countless wars that were going on at the time, and they sack Rome. They take the Pope prisoner, and many atrocities occurred. And this burnt itself really into the memory of popes and the Romans. 1555 was the Peace of Augsburg. 1648 was the Peace of Westphalia, in some ways the traditional date for the end of the Reformation. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.